WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington. Welcome to the Kojo Nandi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. It's Tech Tuesday. Later on the broadcast, what social media means for teens and their self-esteem offline. But first, because the Internet has no borders, it was thought that the lingo, memes, and acronyms we use online erased all traces of a Boston accent or California slang, meaning that like a national television broadcast, there are no dialects online. But thanks to Twitter and its trove of data, some linguists say our tweets reflect regionalisms and online slang. Joining us to discuss how online and offline speech are evolving and how they influence each other is Naomi Barron. She's a professor of linguistics and executive director of the Center for Teaching, Research, and Learning World Languages and Cultures here at American University. Naomi Barron, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Joining us from Argo Studios in New York is Mike Rugnetta. He is host of the PBS web series Idea Channel. He's a composer, programmer, and performer. Mike, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. And joining us by phone from Montreal is Gretchen McCulloch. She's the editor of Slate's Lexicon Valley. She writes about language for a number of other publications, including her blog, All Things Linguistic. Gretchen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Mike, it's long been assumed that Internet speak is universal, but one really fascinating area of research is exploring dialects on the Internet. You tackled this on your PBS web series Idea Channel recently. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I had this idea. I was talking to some friends of mine online, and it occurred to me, you know, maybe I do have something of an Internet dialect that, like, is there a way for me to um, identify my colloquialisms? And so I um, started started just going down this path, and it turns out that, yes, you know, there is something of an Internet dialect that might not be exactly the right um, the right lingo to use, um, but that there is there is something of an identifying linguistic feature. Well, listening to you, you're from Boston. You don't seem to have a Boston accent, despite the fact that, well, if not from Boston, you're from Massachusetts. Did you eventually discover that you do have an Internet accent? And if so, what is it? Um, I think that I tend to think of my Internet accent as being something between Twitter and Tumblr. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that my uh, Bostonness comes through uh, so much as as those kinds of things. Gretchen, you're also interested in this idea that our regional differences show up online. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, I think there's kind of two ways of looking at regional differences online. One of them is. Do your regional differences, like if you say y'all in real life, you probably say it online. Uh, and so that's a, a geographical regional difference being reflected online. And then the other one is, as Mike says, this idea of your dialect being a mix between Twitter and Tumblr, the different websites are kind of like dialect groups that you can speak in a way that's typical of a particular website because the people you interact with on that website speak a certain way. Naomi, you study dialects in real life and online. First, what kind of treasure trove is the internet for a linguist? 
uh, it's unfortunately so huge that unless you really believe in big data and are a super statistician, uh, it's overwhelming. Mercifully, there are people who have the skills and are doing some interesting work. But what I find most interesting in this discussion is that when we speak in real life, meaning for the moment face-to-face, -face, we choose what we say to particular people. So take this issue of y'all. When I'm in the South, I say y'all. When I am in Boston, I do not say y'all. So we learn how to adapt our speech. You know, linguists call code it switch. registers. We code switch within our own language. So it's not even a different dialect, but it's different choices of lexical items. And we do that all the time in regular conversation. So not surprisingly, we can do it online. In other words, regionalisms are reflected on Twitter and elsewhere online. Um, there, there are a couple of notions of what a dialect is. There's the dialect that's geographic. There's the dialect that is a particular social group that is often racially based or religiously based. And then there is a so-called sociolect, which means there's a group of people you identify with, you know, think of received pronunciation uh, in the U.K., Uh, where the people may have no geographic relationship to each other. So we know how to choose which level we want to use for which people, real life, online. We're listening to Naomi Barron. She's a professor of linguistics and executive editor, executive director of the Center for Teaching, Research, and Learning World Languages and Cultures at American University. She joins us in our Washington studio. Join us, joining us from studios in New York is Mike Rognetta. He is host of the PBS web series Idea Channel. He's also a composer, programmer, and performer. And Gretchen McCulloch is the editor of Slate's Lexicon Valley. She also writes about language for a number of other publications, including her blog, All Things Things linguistic, you can join the conversation by calling 800-433-8850. You can send email to koju at wamu.org. Have you noticed any dialects or particular patterns of speech on social media? Has Internet speak ever stumped you? 800-433-8850. You can send email to koju at wamu.org. Naomi, we assume the Internet is affecting the speed at which language changes and is adopted, but you say that's not necessarily true. Why not? Change is an interesting phenomenon. You may say, gee, everybody now is using WMD, weapons of mass destruction, okay, in speech, in writing. Guess what? Almost nobody is using it now. So one of the things that happens on the Internet is although there may be these memes, there may be these words that go viral, and everyone says, of course this is going to change the language, and it doesn't. So if you actually look at the number of things like abbreviations and acronyms that we all thought were going to change the way we write and the way we speech, very, very few of them actually are doing that. LOL is probably high on the list, and a lot of the others like BTW and so forth were around long before the Internet, so they're not new news. You point out that people, especially young people, are much more conscious of what they write and post than we might think. Yeah, because you might judge me on the basis of what my spelling is like, what my grammar is like. We like to talk about things like instant messaging and texting and things that we post on blogs being the things we just shoot off and don't even read before sending. In actual fact, a lot of research, my own and that of my colleagues, shows very often, not all the time, particularly if you're a teenager, 
you care how you position yourself. You care what people think about you. And I, I like to joke that sometimes when I examine things like instant messages and texts, the spelling and the grammar and even the punctuation now are better than the papers students turn into me. Gretchen, <laughs> we know that there are demographic differences on the web. If you don't think so, try deciphering your teens' chat. So how does the Internet break down in terms of language? Um, I think one of the interesting phenomena that's going on on the Internet right now is this idea of stylized verbal incoherence mirroring emotional incoherence. So basically that means that if you if you're feeling a particularly strong emotion, one way that particularly younger people, particularly the more Tumblr demographic, is using to indicate that is you have a particular style of sounding incoherent, but it's it's stylized, it's affected to a certain extent. Like you've picked a certain way of doing that. You haven't just uh, really, you haven't actually really randomly um, chosen your words. You've chosen them according to a particular uh, particular dialect, a particular set of conventions. You're also interested in the ways terms, in particular slang, spread across the Internet. Can you um, expand on the use of the term selfie? <laughs> um, its origins. I mean, the, the origin uh, that, that we're told for selfie, the first place that anybody found it, was this Australian man uh, you know, several years ago uh, used it uh, to, to describe one of his photos. But he says, if you go back and do interviews with him, that he wasn't the first person to actually use the word. It had been around. People had been using it before uh, as well. And if you know anything about Australian English, you know, put some put something on the Barbie, the the IE abbreviation is, is quite common yep. in Australian English. So the idea that they put IE on selfie and that it might be Australian is something that's, you know, uh, seems pretty plausible. And, you know, exactly how that spread is, uh, a little bit more uh, is a little bit more complicated, but it doesn't seem like it was just this one person. You wrote a piece for the website The Toast explaining Doge speak. Can <laughs> you explain Doge speak to us? Yeah. So Doge is a, an internet meme, also called Doge or Do Doge Doge. Um, nobody quite agree on how to pronounce it. I'm not going to enforce anything on it. Uh, where you have a picture of a Shiba Inu. Uh, and a few utterances around that picture, uh, like uh, if you had something around about art, you might say such art, very paint, uh, many color, wow, something like that. And it's very short two-word phrases that deliberately sound a bit incongruous with each other. They don't quite sound grammatical. And that's picking the right level of ungrammaticality is what makes a really clever-sounding dog meme. I am several doges behind. Mike. <laughs> Mike. Very radio. I'll tweet a picture of one, okay? <laughs> okay, good. Mike, you're also interested in the ways people find creative uses for what's on their keyboards. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, one of the things that's, um, that I have been interested in lately that I've sort of, um, I'm just sort of developing a low-level understanding of is the, the novel use of the tilde, um, which is, you know, I think for a lot of us, um, at least for, for me, it's a, uh, it's a pretty unused key on the keyboard. Yes. Um, but it's, it started um, just recently to be used as a, as a kind of 
maybe self-conscious emphasis um, is a way to put it, but it's like emphasis while maintaining a little bit of irony, but also a communication that you understand that the irony is present, which is a very difficult thing to explain um, sort of in generalities. It's kind of like, you know, I had a friend recently who said that she had to go home for family stuff, but the family stuff was not serious at all. Um, she just had to literally deal with family things. So she put two tilde on either side of the phrase family stuff to sort of indicate that, you know, she understood that we understood the phrase family stuff to have a sort of weight to it, but yes. she was dissipating that weight by putting the tilde there. So it's this acknowledgement of this self-conscious acknowledgement of emphasis. Light family stuff. <laughs> talk, a, talk a little bit about leets. What does that mean? And do we know where leets comes from? The like, like leet speak? Leet speak. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I always associate it with, you know, like anybody who's seen the, um, the movie from the 90s, Hackers. Yes. Um, I always associate leet speak with that time and place, uh, sort of like a, um, the 90s, uh, like hacker culture. Um, and it's, it's a way you just, um, it's sort of a, um, a code almost. You just, you're replacing uh, letters uh, as you're typing them with things that look like them. So an E would become a three, um, an A would become a four. You can spell out M's and W's with combinations of forward and backslashes. Um, and I think that it's, I, I always thought of it as a way to signify that you were really great at typing. Because if you could type <laughs> neat really quickly, you were doing really complicated things. And so you really knew your keyboard, you know, your, you had, you know, fingers within fingers to, to type. Um, but that, I think there's also an understanding that that was not actually the case, that anybody who was typing leet regularly was just using a program that translated what they were typing into, into <laughs> speak. Gretchen, there are, there are also retronyms, like a, a yui. That's a selfie of another person, which is just a picture. Are there terms that are just too much fun not to use? Like yeah, I think that one of the great things about internet language is that it's really fun and it's really creative, and people want to know why does uh, why do people speak distinctively or why do people create memes or use fun things on the uh, on the internet? And I asked this question when I was doing a presentation for a group of undergrads at uh, on internet language at the uh, an undergrad linguistics conference, and everybody just laughed because they were all fluent with the internet, and they said, of course we know why we do this. It's because it's fun. It's enjoyable. Playing with language is fun. Gretchen, there's a phenomenon interesting to linguists when a new grammatical construction comes into being. Can you talk about the unusual usage of the word because? Yeah, so because uh, is traditionally used uh, with either a full phrase or with a prepositional phrase. So you can say, um, you know, I, why do you have to go to bed early? Well, because I have uh, because I have work tomorrow morning. Or why am say, I here today? <laughs> because of you. <laughs> because of you. So of you or because I have to, blah, blah, blah. That's the, the kind of conventional use of because. And the newest uh, version is when you have a single word that follows because. So because internet, because language, because radio. Um, or you can have not just a noun, you can have a verb, you know, because because want, because fail, uh, or an interjection like because yay, um, or uh, a variety of other things. So 
that's something that's novel, and linguists have been calling it because X. There were a few names that were thrown around before that, but uh, the the shortest the one that we have is is because X, I think, right now. Uh, and it's that's an interesting one because we were seeing it in internet language uh, initially, but it's something that seems to be making the crossing the gap between spoken and uh, and internet language. Um, so you actually do hear younger younger kids uh, using it casually, naturally, you know, because school, because homework, um, without thinking of it as something that's unique or weird. And I think that may be one that's going to stick around. Naomi, what do you make of the phenomenon of changing something like because chocolate is changing <laughs> grammatical construction different linguistically than other types of slang? Uh, well, there are two questions there. What do I make of it happening, and is yes. this different from other kinds of slang? So most slang we think of as being single words rather than grammatical constructions. But go back a few years to quotative like, as it's called. I was like, boy, is it <laughs> there's, there's a lot of snow in New England today. Mm -hmm. So that was a spoken language phenomenon where it started. We don't know exactly where. It spread like wildfire, and then it started to die out. What's interesting to me about this whole conversation is there's so much trans transparency and, and, and transit back and forth between what we do when we write and what we do when we speak, so that nothing that's happening on the internet, internet, such as with this use of because X, is at all different in kind from what we've done in speaking or what we've been doing in writing um, long before the internet came along. You mentioned like, there's another one slightly more recent that Jordan would like to remind us of. Jordan, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, yes, this I think started in Silicon Valley, and it's that people begin their explanations with the word so. Everything. <laughs> Once you notice it, it drives you crazy. I'm afraid to say that your guests have been doing it. Not that much. I have done interviews where I had one guest who began every single response with the word so. <laughs> I, I will also fully admit to doing which what I hear is another Silicon Valley thing, which is beginning explanations with the word right. <laughs> Caught in that, the like, act. That is a thing that I do, and I'm so self-conscious of it now, and I notice it in, in so many other people. Mike, why do people go to such lengths to create new ways of saying things on social media and <laughs> online in general? <laughs> I think that there's there's a couple things. You know, it's all the normal stuff of you you want to not only um, differentiate yourself from other groups of language users, you also want to fit in with the group of language users that you identify as being central to or, you know, I would say from, from that place. Uh, so if you want to sound like you are from Tumblr or you are from something awful, there is a certain mm -hmm. kind of way that you would speak. Um, and so you would, you, or you would type, you would communicate. Um, and so you would adopt those things. And I think that, you know, the, the way that those things develop is, you know, because of, because of the, uh, because internet, there we go. We got an email. Um. <laughs> yes, because internet. We got an email from Susan who says, my friends in Boston, my hometown often use the word wicked on social media. Most recently, a wicked snowstorm is coming. Remember to park your car. Uh, <laughs> Um, Naomi, you look at how slang is and what it means for language offline. Is this online creativity affecting how we actually talk? Let's take Wicked for a moment. It clearly did not start online. <laughs> it is something you use in Maine. Things are wicked good. And just ask L.L. Beans whether they advertise <laughs> and have for years things that are wicked good in terms of their products. Mm. So... Um, 
it's it's an interesting word. One of the one of the things I find fascinating in discussions about language that we use on the internet is we think we are discovering something, we're inventing something for the very first time, and then you look back and you say, oh, people have used this uh, for you know sometimes for decades, sometimes many centuries back, and there's nothing wrong with recreating something if it's new to you, but let's not think it's something the internet itself is making us do. And a lot of acronyms and slang just die off. Everyone knew what WMD meant a decade ago, but today not so much. And if we think that acronyms evolved because it was too tarp, too difficult to type out a whole word, that's not the case anymore, is it? Yeah, there are these things called virtual keyboards, where the Blackberries had the, all the keys to begin with. And there's so-called predictive texting. It used to be called T9, that we know, or autocorrect, call it what you will. So one of the changes that's come about is the technology has made the, I will almost say, excuses we gave of you have to use abbreviations, you have to use acronyms in, in your text messages um, because it takes too much time. Um, it, it's, as they would say, a bunch of poppycock. If you actually count, which a number of us have, what the, what the average number of characters is in, say, a text message, it is nowhere near the 144 characters that you could put. Depending on the country, depending on the gender, depending upon the age, it's closer to 15 to 20, 25 on average, maybe 40 sometimes. So now we don't have that excuse to use these things. The other thing I think it's really important to know is as a lot of teenagers become... Uh, young adults. Many of them are telling me, when I was younger, I used to do this internet stuff, but now I just want to communicate with people. And you look at the things they write. You look at the fact they're doing lots of blogs. Those are full sentences, and we don't have a whole lot of doge speak, for better or for worse, because they just want to get their message out. And I'm afraid we have to end this segment because time. Naomi Barron is a professor of linguistics and executive director of the Center for Teaching, Research, and Learning World Languages and Cultures at American University. Naomi, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Mike Rognetta is host of the PBS web series Idea Channel. He's a composer, programmer, and performer. Mike, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Gretchen McCulloch is the editor of Slate's Lexicon Valley. She also writes about language for a number of other publications, including her blog, all Things Linguistic. Gretchen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Tech Tuesday, what social media means for teens and their self-esteem offline. I'm Kojo Nand. Good afternoon. You're listening to WAMU 88.5 Tech Tuesday on the Kojo Nandri Show. It's 1229. Tonight at 9 on WAMU 88.5, we present the January episode of Reveal. We'll examine an investigation into the murkiness that surrounds daycare records in the U.S. That's the January episode of Reveal tonight at 9 on WAMU 88.5. In our weather, cloudy, windy today, scattered flurries, high of 40. Mostly cloudy this evening, then clearing, cold, low of 17 tonight. Sunny and gusty tomorrow with a high of 32. Mostly clear tomorrow evening, then partly cloudy with a low of 18. Thursday, cloudy, 50% chance of rain or snow in the afternoon, and a high of 39 on Thursday.
Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Capital Technology University, formerly Capital College, offering master's and doctoral degrees through practical education in engineering, information sciences, and business. More info at captechu.edu. And from General Dynamics Health IT Solutions, dedicated to providing IT solutions that meet the challenges of a new era in healthcare. General Dynamics Health IT, gdit.com slash health. And from WGL, a diversified energy company offering natural gas, electricity, green power, carbon reduction, and distributed energy in over 25 states. Providing energy answers for consumers, businesses, and government agencies at WGL.com. It's a well-researched concern that society and the media's focus on looks and unrealistic body images affects the self-esteem of teens, especially girls. But what about where kids really live? Social media. From how many Instagram followers they've got to YouTube videos voting on whether they're hot or not, new research shows kids are increasingly using even more inventive tools on social media to compare, judge, and compete. Joining us to discuss what today's digital landscape means for teens and their self-esteem is Donna Wick. She joins us from Argo Studios in New York. Donna Wick is a clinical and development psychologist, founder of Mind to Mind, a practice focused on parenting. She's also a consulting psychologist with the Freedom Institute, a substance abuse treatment center. Donna Wick, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Nice to be here. And joining us by phone from San Francisco is Caroline Knorr, parenting editor for Common Sense Media. That's a research, education, and policy organization focused on kids' relationship to media. Caroline Knorr, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Caroline, it's well documented that traditional media have an effect on how teens and especially teen girls see themselves. But what about social media? First, how is it different? Right. That's a great point. There's there is a lot of research about the effect of traditional media on kids' body image, especially girls. Um, but there's really not a lot of research on how social media impacts um, kids' uh, self-image. And, you know, social media is arguably um, you know, more personal. Uh, it's also more public. Um, and so it does have uh, the ability to be even more... A painful for children to get a lot of feedback about their online um, appearance and reputation, um, and we are seeing kids. Um, we are seeing kids seeking out a feedback online. Social media plays a particular role in the life of teens today who spend what seems like 23 out of 24 hours a day on it. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but how important is social media in the life of a teenager today? I'll start with you this time, Donna Wick. Well, hugely. It's hugely important in the lives of teenagers. It's hugely important in the lives of, you know, Almost everyone these days, but certainly adolescents and what, you know, what are now called millennials because they were really the first generation to come of age um, when social media was everywhere. So I think that it, in my view, really amplifies social anxiety because, you know, everyone suffers from social anxiety at some point, but teenagers are particularly vulnerable to it. And now you can see the the party you weren't invited to. You see those carefully curated photographs on Instagram. You see what you missed. You see your friends there. So it there's a term, a hashtag on Instagram called FOMO, which is fear of missing out. 
-hmm. And it, I think, dramatically amplifies that very human fear of missing out. 800-433-8850 is our number. How do you think social media affects adolescents and teens' self-esteem? What do you think of the apps and video posts teens use to rape each other based on looks? 800-433-8850. You can send us a tweet at Kojo Show with your comment or question. Email to kojo at wamu.org. Or you can go to our website, kojoshow.org. Join the conversation there. Caroline. Kids today spend over 50 hours of screen time um, every week, not just on social media, games, videos, etc., but lots of it is texting and social media posts. Common Sense Media has been looking at how kids, in particular girls, relate to social media. What are some of the things you found? Right. Um, yeah, we, we've um, actually just released a white paper uh, called Children, Teens, Media, and Body Image um, that, that takes a look at all of the research available um, on how um, all media is affecting um, kids. What we found is um, 35% of kids are worried about people tagging them in unattractive photos. 27% of kids feel stressed about how they look in photos that are posted online. And 22% felt bad about themselves if their photos were ignored. So we are seeing that the online environment definitely has an impact on how kids feel about themselves. Donna, we all know that adolescents are particularly susceptible to everything from peer pressure to body image issues. What are some of the developmental reasons for that? Oh, well, their peers are so important to them. You know, this is the age where your peers really come into extreme prominence and parental influence fades back into the background a bit. So your mother can or your father can tell you all day long that you're beautiful, um, but if your friends are giving you a different message, um, that's what's going to be more salient to any adolescent. And I think, you know, underneath um, a lot of social anxiety is a fear of judgment. And judgment is also a big developmental issue as an adolescent because you're really venturing out into the world and, and, you know, striving to become an adult for the first time. So situations where you feel that you could be judged or might be judged are particularly, um, they're going to hit you particularly hard. And, of course, social media, again, amplifies that fear of judgment because it's not as if you're going to be judged by the person you're having a one-on-one conversation with. You can be judged by your, you know, 900 Instagram followers. Well, Donna, with girls, there's a lot of attention-seeking and... um approval based on appearance. Mm -hmm. What's the reason for that? Oh, boy, that would take a long time. We only have about half Uh, an hour. (laughs) I don't think we have long enough for that Um, because of the cultural messages that girls get from the time. And, you know, I I don't want to leave boys out of this, too, because especially in adolescence, they're getting a lot of cultural messages from the media, too. Common Sense Media, I think, does a particularly good job at teaching kids and parents how to be critical consumers of media. But to go back to girls, um, you know, they are getting messages from the time they are, you know, they are first exposed to media that they should be thin, they should be tall, they should, you know, fill in the blanks and that what is important is the way they look. And, you know, we can talk about it changing, but boy, it really has not changed enough. 
Carolyn, can you talk about some of the ways girls set themselves up to be compared and to be judged online? Yes. Um, you know, a lot of the apps that kids are using um, really enable um, that uh, judgment, and, and kids, are, kids love these apps. Um, and I think that Donna makes a great point about why. Um, they use them even though it's, it, it, is, it does give them some, you know, critical feedback. Um, Instagram is a good example. There's even on Instagram, um, I'm not sure if a lot of parents know about this, but there are these Instagram beauty contests mm-hmm. where you can submit, uh, you know, um, a picture of yourself and enter it into this sort of online contest to be judged. And the, the losers get a big red X over their picture. Um, that must be fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, so it's sort of like, why do people do this? But then there's also Hot or Not. I mean, that was one of the very Mm -hmm. first, you know, websites that that uh, ranked people's, you know, uh, appearance. That's an app right now. Hot or Not is an app that you can, you know, um, you know, judge people. There's even, you know, like some of the um, the dating apps like Tinder. I think really sort of like fosters this idea of like you know, what it looks like immediate, you know, what a person's immediate appearance looks like. And you can just scroll through them, ugly, 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 pretty, you know. So it just sort of like um, kind of reinforces this idea that all you need to be is pretty. And what I worry about is that because kids are sort of immersed in this, in, in this media environment, even the social media environment, they're not really self-reflecting about what is truly valuable about themselves. So they get involved in this, and they're like, oh, it matters if I'm pretty. That's all that matters. And so they're not really going through a lot of, like, what their intrinsic value is. And I think that a lot of kids can be vulnerable to that dynamic. There are also other interesting undercurrents. Caroline, what's hashtag ugly selfie? Right, Mm -hmm. right. That's what I think is so interesting is that, you know, I think, like, the Internet allows, like, sort of, concurrent but completely um, uh, differing um, trends, to, you know, happen at the same time. So while all, there's all of this, like, you know, approval seeking and, am I, you know, even like kids are going onto YouTube and, and doing videos and asking, you know, strangers if they think that they're pretty or ugly, there's also this sort of like underground trend that's completely the antithesis of approval seeking and it's all about the ugly selfie and there's literally a hashtag called ugly selfie and people will post a picture on instagram snapchat twitter um you know you name it um and it'll say and it'll just like a picture of themselves making an ugly face it'll be them wearing you know it'll be a picture of somebody you know like with a you know beauty mask on or something you know like a green beauty mask or something and it's sort of like they're trying to say, this is my real authentic self. I'm not mm-hmm. always pretty. And I, I think that's sort of um, interesting for parents to understand that there's a huge spectrum of approval seeking that's going on. And sometimes it's almost like that negative feedback that kids are sort of trying to generate just for fun. Got to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be continuing this conversation. You can still call us, 800-433-8850. As a parent, how do you counteract, how do you contextualize the feedback your kids 
are getting on social media. If you're a digital native, how have you navigated the online landscape as you have grown up beyond your teenage years? 800-433-8850. You can send email to kojo at wamu.org. Shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up at one, race and the Great Recession. Homeowners saw wealth disappear when the housing market went bust, but many African Americans are still waiting for a recovery. Today at one on the Kojo Nandi Show on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. And good afternoon. This is WAMU 88.5. I'm Pat Brogan. 1242, partly cloudy skies, 34 degrees, a little brisk out here in Northwest Washington, wind chill of 25. On the next Fresh Air, the Beatles on air live at the BBC Volume 2. We speak with Kevin Hallett, the album's executive producer, collects recordings of early Beatles appearances on the BBC in which they sang originals, covers, and chatted with TV and radio hosts. Hallett also wrote the book, The Beatles, the BBC Archives. Join us at 2. From the moment you wake up, through the chaos of your busy morning, Morning Edition is there with you. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. Through all you have to do, we'll bring you all you need to know on Morning Edition from NPR News. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from Ford's Theater, presenting a world premiere drama about First Lady Mary Lincoln in the days following her husband's assassination. The Widow Lincoln plays now through February 22nd. Tickets at Fords.org. And from the Sanju K. Bonsall Foundation, dedicated to helping people help themselves through improved access to information. Partly cloudy skies, 34 degrees now, as we return to the Kojo Nandi Show. Welcome back. We're talking with... Caroline Knorr, parenting editor for Common Sense Media, research, education, and policy organization focused on kids' relationship to media, and Donna Wick. She's a clinical and developmental psychologist and founder of Mind to Mind, a practice focused on parenting. Donna, I'm glad you mentioned earlier formal fear of missing out because you're seeing a lot of social anxiety having to do with that. We got an email from Christine in Rockville, Maryland, who writes... As a mother, I'm only just seeing how important these photos are and how my 15-year-old gets excited about how many followers. One, what's the best way to talk to her about this is I truly have no idea how important it seems to be. And two, how do we as parents help with the sad feelings about not being invited to parties where they wouldn't even have known about the party without the photos online? This is uncharted territory for parents. Donna? Mm, Yeah, for sure. What a great question. Um, one way I think as a parent to help, and Caroline could certainly speak to this from the common sense, me- common sense media perspective as well, is to practice being a very critical consumer of media with your kids. And you can start that, you know, early. But certainly by 15, I would sit down with your daughter, talk about how the way she feels is a very normal feeling um, and that everybody experiences this uh you know, regret at at being left out of something and talk about how Instagram pictures are, you know, uh, arranged and cut and filtered and all sorts of things are to make those done to make those pictures look like everybody is having 
the best time they have ever had in their entire lives. And that is just a moment in time at a particular party. And in all probability, it's a very carefully staged one. Um, you know, it's not going to make her feel 100% better, but I think it's important to pay, point out the basic falseness of a lot of those images. Caroline? Yeah, I think all those are really great points. I think it's important for parents to model good social media behavior or positive mm -hmm. social media behavior themselves. So I think parents are really susceptible to that feeling. I have to admit that I've had that myself. You know, you see sure. a picture of sort of like, you know, the girls weekend of all the school moms that you weren't <laughs> and you weren't invited. Um, you know, so you can share that, I think, with your kids and say, oh, that made me feel bad. But, you know, I know that I was busy that weekend or, or whatever. I think it's also really important to get make sure that your kids have other activities so they have perspective on that social media part. It's really, really easy for that social media stuff to to um, to really sort of like take over take on sort of like a bigger thing than it really is. So I also love the idea of getting kids involved in um, sort of um, affinity groups online. So if they're into books, if they're into movies, if they're in Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, get them involved in online um, groups where they have a role to play and they're, and they're involved in that online. And that helps put that other social exclusion into perspective. More perspective from Karen in Fairfax, Virginia. Karen, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Um, uh, hello, sir. Thank you for having me on the air. I'm a healthy dating promotion strategist, and I just want to thank the ladies for their input. Uh, one of the things that I think about social media is it is a reflection of how this generation feels about themselves. And there's not a lot of focus on your value. And I was wondering if, if either of the experts would talk to that point if we're focusing more on the outward and your role in society as opposed to really who you are just as who you are as a girl or as a boy. And if that would make a difference because that's the focus of my work. Donna? Mm, yeah, uh, great question. Yes, I mean, that's hugely important. Um, and again, I think increasingly difficult to do in the social media context where everything really can only be judged on appearance. Um, I think, you know, schools and various other organizations are becoming more focused on this and are de developing things called social and emotional wellness curriculums um, that are put in, that are being put into place in schools in an attempt to get people to, kids really, to focus on what makes them feel good, what, why, what makes them proud of themselves. It's, it's a very, um, it's sort of resiliency-based, but there's definitely a lot of work around values and understanding the values in the context of the community you live in, developing your own values, and acting accordingly to those values or according to those values. Caroline, most of us assume these issues come up beginning in adolescence, but Common Sense Media recently put out a new report showing six- to eight-year-old girls feel their ideal body size is thinner than their actual size. Um, can you please explain? 
Yeah, that's right. Um, the white paper that we just released about body image, um, that's really a, a survey of a lot of um, different body image um, uh, research that's been done shows that it that uh, body image really starts to affect kids as young as preschool age, um, and that even like seven, eight, nine-year-old kids have been on a diet. Um, they recommend you know these kids are saying, oh, the best way to to look pretty is to go on a diet, um, and uh, you know there are research showed that. You know, media is just one aspect of the of the things that affect kids' body image. What parents say, especially at that young age, is really important too. So mm-hmm. we really advise parents to um, watch their own messages around their body. Um, so they say, "Oh, you know, um, I my legs are so." strong and muscular, they enable me to, you know, run a mile or whatever. So you you focus on uh, what your body can do versus what it looks like. And then also find media that reinforces your values and doesn't just continue to, you know, sort of, you know, pound this drumbeat of skinny equals pretty. Will Donna, six to eight-year-old girls feeling their ideal body sizes thinner than their current one may have surprised me, but probably doesn't surprise you. Can you comment on what you've seen? Oh, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I remember my oldest daughter, who's now 26, came home. She was about seven at the time, and I was having an argument with her trying to get her to wear snow pants. Um, And we were living in Boston at the time, and it was freezing. And finally I said, why? Okay, why will you not wear these snow pants? And she said, because they make me look fat. (laughs) And I was astounded because exactly as Caroline said, I never talked about diet. I never, you know, made pejorative comments about my own body because those messages are really, really important to young kids when you as a parent are their entire world. And I tried very hard to figure out where in the world she could have gotten that idea from and you know it's it's just pervasive it's everywhere she must have picked it up from the girls at school um she was in an environment that was pretty protected from popular media but it's extraordinary the way that that seeps in on to kelly in washington dc kelly you're on the air go ahead please hi i just wanted to speak to the fact that like in with social media like there's this idea where it makes you feel relevant to what's happening around you or just like with people that you um, come in contact with or certain social groups that you're involved with. But I think that one thing that can be positive about it is that there is a type of counterculture to it all. Like with art, you can see someone's art all the way in London and you can see how relevant it is to the art scene or what you're doing in D.C. or wherever you are. I think there's also this idea where um, you can explore um, different aesthetics about, like, how you are as an individual. Like, there's definitely a contrast between girls that take photos at a different angle or wear a lot of makeup, but then there's also females that are strong and have Instagrams. And I think that, um, for me, with technology, it's trying to turn it into a learning tool as opposed to something that can dig people deeper into like a, a negative self perspective. Have you, you know? been, have you been like that Kelly since you were a teenager? 
Um, well, it wasn't too long ago, but I think that I wasn't originally, but I think it came with just um, understanding my surroundings and what kind of an individual I wanted to be. Um, but I think that it, it depends on what you want to absorb as an individual, you know. Well, it all sounds good, but I guess a part of that develops with the maturity that you have clearly developed, uh, Kelly. Um, Donna, care to comment? Yeah, no, I think that that's, um, it goes back to a bit to what Caroline was saying earlier, where there is, I do see sort of a resistance to all of the pretty or beautiful photographs on Instagram. There are kids who will only put up funny or um, clowning pictures. And the same thing with Facebook. I mean, it, everything seems to have a relatively short lifespan. Facebook, among older kids, is no longer cool because they feel it's been co-opted by a younger generation. I, w I don't know what the next iteration after Instagram is going to be, but everything moves at the speed of light in this area. So there's going to be something. And sooner or later, you do start to see a backlash. It's not necessarily a big one, but you do see kids who are not putting up photographs of themselves in bathing suits um, or, you know, or provocative poses because for whatever reason, they or their peer group have concluded that that's not the way they want to present themselves. Here now is Mary in Washington, D.C. Mary, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Kojo. Um, I wanted to thank you for um, the juxtaposition of today's topic with yesterday's topic. And I went to uh, Politics and Prose last night and met Wes Moore. And I'm, I'm just wondering if, um, without, you know, summarizing that whole topic, um, I think that a lot of people will know what I'm speaking of when I say, how about if parents could use Wes Moore's uh, message of service and involvement and what can you give back to society to to redirect self-conscious teens um, to thinking about what they can give. And, I'm, glad, and, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because even though we're running out of time, it's something that I wanted to ask both of our panelists. Donna, when it comes to teens as a parent, you might be tempted to sit down and do, as Mary is suggesting, have a talk with your kids. But you advise a different strategy. Sorry, um, I, I think you lost me there. I, I would advise having a talk with my kids. I'm sorry, what... But that is not likely the moment at which the kid is likely to open up, and it can kind of feel like a lecture, can it not? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Now I know what you're referring to. Yes. Um, with adolescents, you have to get them when they are in the mood to speak to you. Um, and since there's a lot of time when they are not in the mood to speak to you, you have to pick your time carefully. They are not going to receive a message when you decide that you have the time to talk to them about really whatever it is you want to talk to them, but especially about so social media, because as a generation, we don't have the kind of credibility with teenagers that we do if we want to talk to them about, say, drugs or alcohol, because they know they're way ahead of us in this area and that there's a lot of it that we don't understand. So you really want to be around and be there when they want to open up about it. And finally, Caroline, how important would you say it is to help kids figure out 
how to present themselves and relate to others online without necessarily a lecture? Is navigating media and technology essentially a new life skill that kids need to learn? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Absolutely. And I think that it needs to start young. And I think that uh, parents really need to role model positive digital citizenship themselves, help their kids view media critically. And, um, and also, it's really important to choose quality media. So media that has role models that you believe in, that send the kind of messages that reinforce your family's values. Caroline Knorr is a parenting editor for Common Sense Media, a research, education, and policy organization focused on kids' relationship to media. Caroline, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Donna Wick is a clinical and de- developmental psychologist, founder of Mind to Mind, a practice focused on parenting. She's also a consulting psychologist with the Freedom Institute, a substance abuse treatment center. Donna Wick, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Nand. Coming up tomorrow on the Kojonam, the show State House Rock. Lawmakers in Richmond and Annapolis debate everything from gun control to the future of mass transit in our region. Then at one, the fast casual food revolution. How innovative chefs and restaurant chains are challenging the way Americans think about food. The Kojonam, the show noon till two tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. And good afternoon. You're listening to the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5. It's Tuesday, Tech Tuesday. Heading up to 1 o'clock now, mostly cloudy, 36 degrees, wind chill of 26 outside. Cloudy, windy for the remainder of the day. Scattered flurries in the mix as well. High 4. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.